This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. There's always been interest in the end times throughout history. But that interest in the end times and the return of the Lord is not being manifested into the lives of the believers. And that's what I mean by that. Let me illustrate to you. There were tens of millions of copies of the Left Behind series books sold. And yet the number of Christians who tithe, give the 10% back to the Lord, is less than 2.6%. The vast majority of Christians give less than 2%. Now, you know what I mean. While end times conferences draw tens of thousands of people, prayer meetings draw only a tiny full each time. End times material literally snap so fast, and yet less and less and less Christians are willing to witness for their faith publicly. Now, Whether you agree with me or not, do you get the point? Say amen. Amen. How can anyone be truly waiting for the return of the Lord and they live this life as if they're going to be here forever? Even the secular-minded are getting on the bandwagon in movie-making and television programs. There are all sorts of movies and banking on this end-time thing, Armageddon, end of the world, the Nostradamus prophecies, the end of the Asdaq calendar. And yet Christians and non-Christians seem to be acting alike. They're just kind of interested in the subject. They're fascinated by it. They want to know more about it. But true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are waiting on a daily basis for the return of the Lord. And that waiting motivates every aspect of their life. That waiting motivates all of their service, and they serve more. They give more. Because of their motive of waiting for the Lord, they are witnessing more. C.S. Lewis, many years ago, made a startling statement. Listen carefully. He said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who do most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. See, that's what end time is supposed to do. The Pew Research Center found that 79% of Christians believe in the return of Christ. 20% believe that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime. Now, you would think that if those 20% really believe that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime, we would have the most powerful, the strongest missionary force in the world. And this would have been translated into selfless living, into self-giving, like we've never seen before, but sadly, that is not the case. But our generation is not the first generation, as I already said, has been interested in the return of Christ. From the early church on, there's been fascination of what the Bible called parousia. Parousia is a Greek word for the return of Christ. It's a doctrine of the return of Christ. And that is why the Apostle Paul write this letter, those two letters to the Thessalonians, who were confused on the subject. 
He spends the first half of the first epistle letting them know what a waiting person who's waiting for Christ should live like. And then he waits all the way to the end, chapters 4 and 5, when he really gives us the detail about the return of Christ. So we're going to go through the whole epistle. These believers in Thessalonica were truly a model of faithful believers. And that was not wasted on the Apostle Paul. He did not miss that because he founded that church. In fact, the city of Thessalonica was founded in the 4th century B.C. and named after Alexander the Great's half-sister, Thessaloniki, who was married to one of his generals by the name of Cassander. Thessalonica was a very strategic city in the Roman Empire. It was the crossroads between the eastern side of the Roman Empire and the western side of the Roman Empire. It was a very strategic city. It was a very key city. And so, about 50 AD, the Apostle Paul comes to Thessalonica for the first time, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was only there three weeks, and many people responded to that preaching of the message of the gospel. And they became converted, both Jews and Greeks alike, Greek God-fearers, convert to Christ. It's often the case. Those who hate the gospel will mount persecution against those who preach the gospel. And that happened exactly in Thessalonica. They got so mad, they stirred up trouble, they wanted to kill the Apostle Paul only after preaching for three weeks. And they literally got him out of there just in the nick of time, saved his life. And that really disappointed him. It broke his heart. Because he really wanted to spend more than three weeks in order to instruct them in the Word of God. They knew believers, and he didn't want to just leave them in the lurch. In Ephesus, he spent three years instructing the church in Ephesus. Now it's only three weeks. And so he sits down and writes these Holy Spirit-inspired letters in order to instruct them on several things that they had problem with sexual morality, about earning their livings. But above all, they were totally confused about the parousia, the coming of Christ. And so, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes this magnificent letter. And he begins by thanking God for their wonderful witness for Jesus. In chapter 1 alone, he gives us ten things about the church. And in giving us those ten things, he tells us the greatest and the best way to live for Christ, especially if you're waiting for Him. First of all, he said that they had working faith, verse 3. Secondly, they had a laboring love. Uh, Thirdly, they had an enduring hope. Uh, Fourthly, they had humility before God in the light of His election and His love for them, verses 4 and 5. And number five, they were genuine imitators of Christ, verse 6. They had joy in the midst of trouble, verse 6. They were exemplary in their lives, verse 7. They had zeal in witnessing for Christ, verse 8. They displayed transformation in their lives, verse 9. And then finally, they are expectantly waiting for the Lord to come back. How do you like a 10-point sermon? (laughs) Well, I'm going to summarize all this for you. In fact, verse 3, the Apostle Paul summarizes the genuine Christian faith. My friend, listen to me. I think most of us know 
that if you walk down Main Street, USA, any town in the USA, and there are a dozen churches along that road, you're going to find a dozen different understanding of what the gospel is all about. A dozen different explanation of why they go to church and why they call themselves Christians. That is part of the tragedy of the age we live in. And Paul is saying, faith, love, and hope are the characteristics of a true and genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these characteristics, you notice, they are outward, not inward. They are active, not passive. They are visible, not hidden. They are public, not private. Faith is active toward God. Love is active toward one another. And hope is active for the future longing of the return of Christ. Faith is anchored in the past as we look to the rugged cross where Christ died and rose again on Calvary. And faith is anchored in that past. Love is established in the present as we love one another and we practice love and forgiveness of one another. Hope is firmly established and found in the future. Every Christian, listen to me, everyone who truly calls himself a believer in Jesus Christ must be a believer, number one, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation, and there must be lover, and finally he must be, she must be hoper. I made up a word, but <laughs> believer, lover, and hoper. <laughs> These three are the visible evidence that we are practicing this kind of life in everyday life, not just on Sunday. The evidence of Christianity in us is not that abstract concept of abstract notion, and I heard it many, many, for many, many years. Some of you heard the same thing. My faith is very private. My religion is my private. That's mumbo-jumbo. That is not the Christian faith. Faith must work. Love must labor, and hope must endure. That's the Word of God, not me. <laughs> True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, as the only way to heaven and salvation, means just that. <laughs> it must be working faith, not just words only, not dead faith. In fact, James tells us anybody can claim to have faith. Lots of people claim, so, oh, my faith is faith, you know, all about faith-based, you know. And I wonder what we're talking about. Faith, you know, you have faith in the government, you have faith in, in, in yourself, and you have faith in faith, or have faith in your mother-in-law. I mean, faith is a big thing now. <laughs> That's mumbo-jumbo. Faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation in heaven is a working faith. It's not a dead faith. Here's what James said. Anybody can claim to say, I have faith. But only those who truly have faith manifest that faith in serving and in witnessing and in giving. That's why we got this schizophrenic Christians. True love labors. How? By sacrificing, by forgiving, by giving, by persevering, by stretching of oneself. Otherwise, love will be like the stuff we see on television, mere sentimentality. And that's really the national interpretation of love today, sentimentality. But that's not what the Word of God said. True hope waits patiently, 
not in a white robe up in the mountains, doing nothing. Hope does not mean we just hunker down, store food and gold and silver. I mean, after all, they tell you this is the way you're supposed to do. No. Hope gives us peace in the midst of persecution. It gives us perseverance in the face of oppression. That's what hope is all about. In fact, John Calvin said that the true definition of Christianity is just those three. In verses 4 and 5, Paul unites us love and election. God's choice of us and His love are one unit. Why did God choose us? Why did He love us? Is it because we're lovable? No way! I'm telling you, I mean, Moses looked at God's people, the apple of his eye, the chosen people, when they came out of Egypt, and he said to them, why did God choose you? It's not because you're the most brilliant people in the face of the earth. God doesn't work that way. His love and his choice of us is because of his sovereign will. His love and his choice is a secret known only to the one true God. Let me tell you something. I was brought up as a boy to believe that I am the one who makes the decision. I'm the one who chooses God. And I am the one in my pride, my pride, my pride, until about 40 years ago when somebody taught me this truth about God's calling and God's choice and God's election. From that moment on, I can tell you as God my witness, it literally put me on my knees in humility and in brokenness before God. You loved me. You called me, you chose me. How humbling that is. How humbling. And the person who taught me this, he said, I want you to just think about this. When you go to heaven and you meet the Lord face to face, what are you going to say to him? You're going to say, boy, I was really brilliant that I made that decision to follow you. (laughs) Who will you go on your face? Say, thank you. Thank you chose me, unworthy that I am. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, I chose you. You did not choose me. If it's up to us, we would choose the world, we would choose the flesh, and we would choose the deception of Satan. If it's up to us, we would choose selfishness and self-centeredness. And yet the Apostle Paul explains that part of the reason God chooses His children is because He wants them to make Him known to others. In verse 5, all the way to verse 10, Paul shows us the three stages. He's operating on threes here. By which the gospel progressed in the church of Thessalonica among the believers there. First, the gospel came to them, verse 5. They welcomed the gospel, verse 6. And then they take that gospel message to others, verse 8. That's how it works. That's how it works. This is the message of this New Testament that is repeated over and over and over again. In fact, it's the message repeated in the Old Testament as well. God told His people, Israel, that I chose you so that you might be a light to the nations. But instead, they became inward-looking, they became navel-gazers. We are saved 
Not just we sit there and do nothing. We are saved just so we say nothing. We are saved not just to say, well, lucky me, and I'm lucky my family is saved, and I am saved, and, and everybody around me is saved, and, you know, let the world go to hell in a basket. No, that is not the attitude of a true believer. You can't just be saved to say, well, you know, I'm not responsible for anybody else. No. The very reason God called us, chose us, and loved us is that so we can be responsible to our classmates and to our neighbors and to our friends and co-workers. We are saved for a purpose. God saved us in a sovereign will, but we know for sure that He saved us for a reason. He placed us in the place where you are for a reason, for a purpose. He has given you the opportunity that He is giving you for a reason and for a purpose. And Paul said, the gospel did not just come to you in words, verse 5. Yes, sure, it was verbalized in words, but not only in words. gospel came to you in power. Dynamos, which we get the word dynamite, and it literally means has power to blast away, to open the blind eyes, and to crack the hard hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. See, when the dynamite of the Holy Spirit is accompanying words, and they're not just mere words, they will open the blind eyes, and they will break a hard heart. Many of you heard me long enough. You've heard me say it repeatedly, that I can speak the most eloquent words which I can't, or I could use the most erudite arguments which I don't, or I could give you the most powerful expressions which I can't, but until and unless the Holy Spirit of God takes these words and uses them, we will only fall on deaf ears. And that is why all of our witnessing and all of our ministries and all of our activities, are they must be totally and completely submerged under the power of the Holy Spirit. They must be totally and completely submerged in prayer. They must be totally and completely depend on the dynamism of the Holy Spirit. When the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, there will always be hostility. Because the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ would challenge human pride, not cater to it as many preachers are doing today. And the reason so many churches in America today are not facing opposition or hostility from the world is because many of them are not preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. Whenever you share your faith with somebody else, Some would welcome it and accept it. Others will not. And you should not be surprised at that. That should not surprise you at all. There are so many people out there who want to be liked instead of wanting to convert people to Christ. Verse 6, in spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's the same Holy Spirit that is working in the person who's doing the witnessing, speaking through Him. It's the same Holy Spirit working on the other end, opening the eyes of the blind for somebody to respond. Whenever you share your faith, some will welcome it, some will not. I know some of you are apprehensive about sharing your faith. Some of you are apprehensive and timid about witnessing for Christ because you think that you're going to do it in your own strength. Some of you are worried that you might get persecuted. Either way, you're blessed. Either way, you're blessed. Read the Beatitudes. You say, blessed are you 
when you sit back and do nothing (laughs) and play it safe and don't rock the boat. Blessed are you. No. He said, blessed are you when you are persecuted. You win both ways. When the hero responds, you're both going to experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that is why Jesus said that there are greater joy in heaven. I mean, literally, in a Yusuf translation, the angels having a big party every time a sinner repents. But the one thing that was clear about the Thessalonians is that they did not sit back on their blessed assurance and did nothing when they came to Christ. Look at verse 8. From you, the whole world was impacted by your witness. Ah, but do you know what the secret power that was, of course, we know the real power is the Holy Spirit. But you know part of the secret of why their witness was effective? It's right there in the text. I'm telling you, it is so incredible. He says, transformed lives. Transformed lives. That's the secret. What happened when they heard the gospel? They decisively and definitively walked away from idol worship and began to worship Jesus alone. They definitively and actively and outwardly were serving the living God regardless of the cost. And they were patiently waiting for His return. The three evidence of faith, what are they? You turn to Christ, then you immediately serve Christ, then daily you wait for Christ. Faith Love, hope. Probably somebody here would say, well, Michael, the Thessalonians worshipped idols, and they walked away from idols, but, you know, in America, we really don't worship idols. Uh, We don't have idols in America, I mean, you know. In Hinduism and in animism, and, you know, they have these gods that they bring out of the closet, and they bow to, and then they put them back in the closet. That's idol worship, but we really don't have idol worship here. Really? Let me tell you the definition of idols first. (laughs) Anyone or anything that occupies our attention, our resources, and our time, that's an idol. The overall occupation of those things, they're idols. They could be the idol of selfish ambitions. Could be the idol of accumulation of money and power. Could be the idol of infatuation with the wrong person. It could be an addiction that you keep saying that I can't break away from it. That means you're saying that God is not a strong God. You're worshiping the wrong God. Because my God said He breaks the power of addiction. He breaks idol's power. He breaks all of that when you definitively walk out of these idols, walking with the living God. These are all idols, and many claims to be Christians, and they claim Jesus to be their Savior, and yet they're living under the power of Satan. Anything and anyone who controls your life is an idol that must be decisively broken away from by the power of God. The Bible gives us a contrast between these idols and the true living God. Here they are. Idols are dead. Our God, our true God is the living God. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one. 
Idols are visible and tangible, but God is invisible and intangible. God is beyond the reach of sight and touch. God is the creator of the universe. He is the creator of all mankind. In verse 9, he's saying, you cannot claim to have turned to the living God from idols, and you're still serving these false gods, these false idols. When you turn to Christ, He will set you free, free to freely serve Him and Him alone. Verse 10, finally, He's saying the authentic believer is to be waiting for the return of Christ. Paul, of course, building his case as he gets to chapter 4. A true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ does not panic about false prophecies about end times. Let them say all they want. Let them set all the dates. The clearest indication that you are waiting for Christ is your serving of Him. That is the clearest indication. Hear me right on this one. Waiting and serving must go together. You say, but serving is active, but waiting is passive. No, they not. Not when it comes to the Christian faith. Waiting and serving must balance each other in the Christian faith. Jesus said, occupy till I come. He didn't say, head out to the mountains. He said, so just pour on these charts. He said, occupy till I come. What does occupy means? Means work hard till I come. Means serve diligently till I come. It means give generously till I come. And so, today what causes end-time schizophrenia in the church of Jesus Christ is the misunderstanding of what it means to be waiting for Christ while serving Christ. If you're truly waiting for His return, then you must be serving Him with all of your heart.